You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR. 855am on your dial and thank you to Black Noise Radio for their show on this Monday, August the 17th as the year just keeps rolling on. Welcome to Listening Notes. I'm Judith Peppard and I'll be with you for the next half hour. I begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Kulin Nations where sovereignty was never ceded and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. And I hope you're keeping well throughout this stage four lockdown. Lots of challenges, but it's good to see numbers coming down. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm finding a lot of people in the street wearing masks are smiling with their eyes. So that's pretty special when that happens. COVID-19 has highlighted even further the problems in our aged care sector. And if you were watching the reports on the Royal Commission on Aged Care last Wednesday, you might have seen Professor Joseph Ibrahim, my guest in the first part of the show today. And later, I'll be speaking with Madeline Taylor from the School of Law at the University of Sydney. She'll tell us why the coal seam gas project proposed for Narrabri in New South Wales should not be approved. The project will drill below the Great Artesian Basin, potentially contaminating groundwater, land and surface water. Research shows that methane contamination of groundwater can occur uh, when you have this pressure during extraction to extract the gas. And that's Madeline Taylor. And we'll hear more about that later in the show. But right now, Professor Joseph Ibrahim, head of the Health, Law and Aging Research Unit in the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash's Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. He's also a practicing consultant physician in geriatric medicine. I contacted him because I read a paper he'd written, published in the conversation back in July. The paper was entitled, Four Steps to Avert a Full-Blown Coronavirus Disaster in Victoria's Aged Care Homes. I contacted him a few weeks ago. He was flat out because he'd been having lots of media contact, the most he'd had in his whole career, he told me. But we managed to find a time for a Zoom meeting. In his paper, he refers to the interim report of the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety, saying it laid bare the system failures in the provision of aged care in Australia. So I started by asking Joseph Ibrahim to describe those failures. The best one to start with is that the resident, the person who is the recipient of care, has no voice. They're not heard of. No one is called to account on their behalf. And and that's probably one of the biggest things that's missing. The second thing that's missing is transparency. The amount of information that comes out about how care is delivered, where the money that the federal government pays is spent, how the service performs, are not easily or readily accessible publicly. Third is uh, an absence of accountability. People that have responsibility to do the job are not called to account when that job is not done and there's a failure to understand why that's occurred. There was widespread evidence of neglect of older people, the use of restrictive practice, so the use of chemical restraints or physical restraints, an absence of clinical care, so malnutrition, dehydration, poor oral care, and really not meeting the needs of people to enable them to live their lives. The cruelest thing is 
to have someone who knows that they've got one or two years left of life. They're not asking for very much except to have something to eat, to be clean, dry and warm. And we're not achieving that. It shouldn't be so hard. The other thing is the lack of ability to communicate and respect or acknowledge that people with dementia, they're a person and they're a person with specific needs. They have gaps or inability to communicate. We ought to be the ones to adjust to them, not the other way around. Yes, with the knowledge of that report and also, as you say, there wasn't anything that was very new. How did you feel when you heard about COVID-19 cases in China and Europe in relation to aged care? When I first heard in January, it's in a faraway country and I'm sure it'll be contained like it always has been. Come sort of mid to late February, really started to get a sense of unease. Then the pictures started coming from Spain, particularly, and Italy, where it was clear that it was older people that were dying, and particularly those in aged care. And it was at that point, my colleagues around me said, we need to do something. And we then started to look into what were the risk factors, both in terms of the system as a whole, the individual buildings and how they're operated, and also to have a look at the nature of the virus. And when you put all of those things together, the potential for a massive catastrophe and massive casualties from it was really clear middle of March. Going back a minute, you know, when you were describing some of the problems in the sector, are there differences between uh, public and privately operating aged care homes? Most of the publicly operated homes are in Victoria that are owned by the state. They are required to adhere to a staff-resident ratio and they're also required to have nursing staff. That's different to the privates and the not-for-profits. And this then goes back to the federal government's um, legislation. The legislation, I think, reads something along the lines of you have enough staff to do the care that's required for the residents. It's quite open-ended for interpretation. Very vague. Yeah, so have we had more cases in the private sector then? There have been more cases in the private sector. There are more private sector homes than public sector homes. Many of the public sector homes are in regional and remote areas where the privates generally don't operate. And so the smaller country towns are typically publicly funded homes. You do need to look at more detail, but there are certainly lessons within doing those comparisons to better understand. And I think that with the current situation in Victoria, a comparison between the size of the home, how long it's been operating, what their history was with the regulator in achieving compliance would help inform which homes are likely to be well prepared and which ones are underprepared and then be able to allocate resources according to need. Your paper is very clear on what needs to happen. You call for a coordinated, standardised, compassionate, supportive response to prevent premature deaths and to minimise psychological harm to residents, families and staff. And that's when I started thinking, we are talking about the community here. In an emergency, it's very easy to focus purely on saving someone's life at any cost. In terms of the population we're looking at serving, we want to be demonstrating that we care. Many people that are in their 80s or 90s 
may have readily accepted the notion of dying. They might not necessarily want us to be saving their lives, but they want us to be there providing the care that they need and the comforts that they need. We often forget the staff and the families are often traumatised by the situations because they feel responsible for their mum or dad or grandparents actually being in the place or they feel responsible because they're the care provider. The residents, the, the most disempowered, but the staff and the families are also have very little, if any, control around the circumstances they find themselves in. Who does have control? The aged care providers, the regulator and the federal government. They're the ones that provide the system or the structure for how things operate. And this goes back to my training, looking at how systems of care operate that lead to harm. The staff don't want to hurt anyone. The families don't want anyone to get hurt. It's the system of care. How have you organised aged care as a country? How have we organised it within the state? What are the rules and laws that we've allowed open for people to interpret whichever way that they want? We are sadly reaping um, what we've sown. We've had a system that has been dysfunctional and we've had a external crisis that is uncompromising. And COVID-19 has been uncompromising, as the daily figures are showing. Joseph Ibrahim has identified four areas that need attention in aged care facilities to protect people during a coronavirus pandemic. But he comes back to listening to and respecting the residents. The classic example here is when we discussed lockdown in aged care homes. The arguments were for and against locking down a home is cruel and harms people and the residents don't want it, through to you have to lock down because otherwise the virus will get in and kill everyone. Everyone had an opinion, but hardly anyone had consulted the residents about what they wanted. Most of the residents, as it turned out, felt safe with fewer visitors because most people don't want to die before their time. Most people prefer to continue living their life because most of us understand that you really only get one chance and to make a decision you can't come back from is not what you want to do. But we hadn't asked the residents and they're the ones that were primarily affected. The other issue Joseph highlighted with regard to preparedness was the training of staff in wearing PPE. Not so simple, it seems. We know from the Royal Commission and we know from workforce studies that the staff undertrained and they're short-staffed. We also know, and I don't know if anyone's watched film or, or tried to put on PPE themselves if they visited anyone, or if you've had a little bit of a chuckle watching some politician teach us how to do it. It looks easy, but it's actually not. And you have to be able to do it clearly, simply with definitive movements in a particular format. If you've got multiple steps to do and you're under stress and you're tired and you're mentally fatigued and you're worrying about, are your kids okay? Uh, is there an outbreak at the school? Am I going to get sick? Will I make someone sick? And now you've got to do something really carefully. It creates a, a large cognitive burden and psychological burden. And it's no surprise that people will slip up. One of the dangers at the moment is that our focus is on the large outbreaks. 
and we're not paying attention to the ones that have no outbreak. This is sort of a classic example of an emergency where your focus is directly in front of you. That's where you pay all your attention. You put out the big fire and you forget to go look for the spot fires or to prepare the towns that aren't yet affected to get them to put their plans in place. We need at least a two-tiered approach, one that's addressing the immediate needs, but we need to be preparing those places all around Australia for the eventuality. Yes, and I think your, you know, your, your final point is that um, putting these practices into place will benefit the whole nation. I see an awful lot of ageism. And so there's this sense that your life has no value once you retire or as you get older. If you imagine that these outbreaks had occurred in schools and children had died, the level of outrage would be considerably different. Older Australians are Australians. Um, They're just a different age and they help build this country. They're part of the country. They deserve a voice just like everyone else. Professor Joseph Ibrahim, head of the Health, Law and Aging Research Unit in the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University, also a practicing consultant physician in geriatric medicine. And I will put his paper on the website. I've certainly found it helpful. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. You're on 3CR. The show is Listening Notes. I'm Judith Peppard, and great to have you with us this afternoon. You may have heard in the news that there's been a lot of opposition to an unconventional or coal seam gas project that Santos is proposing for Narrabri in New South Wales. One of Australia's top scientists, John Williams, publicly stated earlier this month that the project poses too great a risk to the region's water, people and environment. However, Santos and the New South Wales Department of Planning, Industry and the Environment, or DPI as it's known, say the project was subjected to rigorous scientific assessment. So what's going on? I contacted Dr. Madeline Taylor last week to find out more. Madeline is a lecturer and researcher at the University of Sydney Law School, specialising in energy and natural resources law, and in particular, the intersection between energy regulation, energy policy, and landholder rights. I began by asking Madeline Taylor to describe Narrabri for people like me who haven't been there. 
Narrabri is a beautiful uh, rural region in New South Wales, referred to as a food bowl in terms of its agricultural industry. It is also home to the beautiful Pilliga Forest. The Gamoy people are the traditional custodians of the land there. So it's a beautiful area. So what's being proposed for Narrabri? So the Narrabri Gas Project is an 850 well coal seam gas production and extraction project in the region. It borders on and encompasses some area in the Pilagira Forest, and it also encompasses rural land. So the way that calcium gas works, of course, is we find a plot of land, we drill down with cement casing into the ground, and we dewater the coal seams because there's water underneath. This is home to the Great Artesian Basin. We have to extract that water in order to suck up that gas. So that's essentially the process that takes place. Now, what that will do to the region is extensive dewatering. And indeed, farmers do rely upon the Great Artesian Basin and the shallow aquifers that lie in that region for water. We're dewatering and we're actually producing salt brine water as well. So what happens after you've extracted that contaminated water is we put it into a drying pond. And there are all sorts of problems with these ponds, which have the extracted water sitting out in the open. There's also lots of problems with the brine that's been extracted. Now, at the moment, DPI is proposing that Santos the proponent would put that brine and that salt in a landfill, municipal landfill. So the brine goes into the landfill and then there's significant risks of leaching. So what that means is when we have rain pouring down onto this landfill, we can have this very soluble and highly potent brine leach out into the ground. So there's a huge amount of risks in terms of hydrology, in terms of contamination of the water table itself in the Great Artesian Basin. What we do in terms of the produced groundwater and that brine presents another layer of risks. And that's not even going into the emissions, of course, that a new coal seam gas basin being opened up would produce. What impact will the brine have if it leaches out on the agricultural land? That brine can cause contamination to the soil, it can leach down underground, and it can also create contamination to any shallow water aquifers, which there are in this region. We've seen a lot of issues with surface water contamination from coal seam gas in Queensland. So the big fear here is that Narrabri, if approved, will end up being essentially a replica of what has happened in Queensland. We have coal seam gas scarring the agricultural land landscape there. We have farmers complaining that their shallow aquifers that they rely upon for groundwater, for feeding their stock, etc., has been contaminated. And that is the fear with Narrabri. Yes. And of course, we live in a, a country where water is scarce already. In your article, you put forward reasons why this project is a bad idea. And the first one you mentioned is gas security. Can you say a bit more about that? The whole reasoning behind Narrabri itself is that this project will produce gas, which is needed for New South Wales in order to provide gas security. However, Narrabri is representative of just a very small amount of gas in the Gunnada Basin. It's very small. It's something like 0.05% of Australia's gas. It's also very expensive to produce this gas because it is in a formation of full of wet coals, which harks back to that dewatering process. Why it has been touted as being in the public interest is because it will contribute to gas security for New South Wales. And this is based on a scenario where Santos actually apparently commits to providing all gas from the Narrabri project directly to the New South Wales gas market. There is no legally binding commitment by Santos 
to ensure that all gas produced in Narrabri will be reserved for the New South Wales gas market. Firstly, there is no legislative settings to allow this in New South Wales. So under our petroleum legislation, there is no section that says the minister can require a project proponent like Santos to reserve gas exclusively for New South Wales. The second reason is that DPI has not actually proposed in its recommended conditions of consent to the Independent Planning Commission that Santos should be required to reserve all gas for New South Wales. And if you've just joined us on 3CR, I'm speaking with Dr. Madeline Taylor from the University of Sydney Law School about a proposed coal seam gas project in Narrabri in New South Wales. And you've just been introduced to two acronyms that will feature in the next part of the story. So DPI is the New South Wales Department of Planning, Industry and Environment. The IPC is the Independent Planning Commission of New South Wales, which has the responsibility for approving the project or saying no. And at this stage in the process, DPI has recommended to the Independent Planning Commission or the IPC that the Santos Coal Seam Gas Project be approved. But Madeline and others have argued that DPI's approval is based on flawed evidence. I asked Madeline about that evidence. First is that gas security argument that we've already spoken about. DPI in saying that all of this narrow-bright gas produced will certainly be reserved for the New South Wales domestic market is simply not based on any evidence or any legal compulsion. The second issue was is around water risks. DPI has said that the project doesn't pose significant risk to high-quality groundwater in a region where we have a very diverse and beautiful and precious ecosystem, which is highly dependent on the groundwater. We also know that the project will drill below the Great Artesian Basin, potentially contaminating groundwater, land and surface water. And research shows that methane contamination of groundwater can occur uh, when you have this pressure during extraction to extract the gas. So we don't believe that the evidence is there that DPI can assert that there will not be significant risk to high-quality groundwater when numerous hydrologist experts have argued to the contrary. So what's happened? It seems as if DPI has really taken a broad stretch of the legal term public interest and tried to argue that although there are risks present, we don't need to apply the precautionary principle because the risks are so low, which of course we know under the law, if there's any risk at all, we do need to apply the precautionary principle. So it is a sidestep to that. And finally, we can see that DPI is clearly trying to meet the New South Wales government's memorandum of understanding where New South Wales government had committed to the federal government to inject an additional 70 petajoules per annum into the New South Wales gas market. However, this MOU commitment to produce the additional 70 petajoules has actually already been met with the introduction of the Port Kembla LNG import terminal. The second point is that Narrabri is uncommercially viable even with the agreement that the New South Wales government has with the federal government, this project is not required. I mean, one of the things I felt reading your paper was that there has been political interference in the process, particularly given the the Morrison government's desire for a gas-led COVID recovery. 
how does this affect DPI? So DPI, of course, isn't immune from political pressure. It's representing New South Wales Government Planning Authority. I do feel that they feel the pressure under this 70 petajoules per annum MOU between New South Wales Government and the Federal Government. The other point to mention, of course, is that the gas-led recovery that's been touted by the COVID Commission under the Morrison Government is trying to subsidise gas pipeline and gas projects in order to reduce gas prices to $4 a gigajoule. That's the point where it becomes commercially viable. However, Narrabri itself is extremely expensive gas to produce because of the wet coal, and it will be around $7 to $9 per gigajoule. So it won't actually be fundamentally compatible then with the gas-led price point the Morrison government is trying to float. So for a whole world of reasons, we can see that DPI is trying to recommend the approval of this project in order to satisfy the MOU and the gas-led recovery argument by the Morrison government. Yet we see Narrabri is fundamentally incompatible with both of those policies due to cost and secondly due to the small amount of gas that would be produced. And what about the community opposition, I mean Indigenous heritage, which are supposed to play a role in approval of such projects? What's happened to that? Santos commissioned a social impact assessment and the department then engaged the University of Queensland's Professor Deanna Kemp to review it. And DPI then took that review from Professor Kemp, despite the fact that she did raise significant concerns around social impact as being a green light, essentially, for this project, that it would have minimal social impact. That is certainly not the case. And we have argued that DPI should be commissioning its own social impact management assessment rather than relying on the proponent's assessment, Santos. And we don't believe there's sufficient evidence then to suggest that the social impacts in the short term and long term being manageable here. What you're describing is a pattern that we're seeing in other places. The Narabri gas project presents considerable and underestimated risks to the environment, to water resources and communities. And we argue that the commercial viability argument around energy security has not been made out successfully by Santos. And we believe that the Narabri gas project would be unsustainable, unviable, and it's not in the public interest Furthermore, there's a high likelihood that this gas asset may actually become stranded due to the global glut in gas at the moment. We've got low, low gas prices. We've got an excess supply of gas. If Narrabri gets approved, this is just the beginning. It will open the floodgate for New South Wales. We have four petroleum production licences that are up for grabs here from Narrabri. If all those four get approved, that is a market signal to the rest of the gas industry that New South Wales is open for business. Madeline Taylor, lecturer and researcher at the University of Sydney Law School. Communities struggling to have their voices heard against the might of a cashed-up gas industry and an out-of-touch Prime Minister pushing for a gas-led COVID recovery when gas prices are tanking around the world. And who pays for the clean-up if projects are stranded? And that's a concept that keeps coming up, and we'll talk about it a bit next week. We don't need anything more from gas. We've got a better solution, and it's cheaper. It pays for itself in two years. Come on. Peter Newman from the Curtin University Sustainability Policy Institute, and he'll be joining me next week. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local Issues. 
So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. It's coming up to the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in to Listening Notes today. And big thanks to my two guests, Joseph Ibrahim and Madeline Taylor. Stay tuned to 3CR because Diaspora Blues is coming up next. Stay safe, and I'll catch you next Monday at 2 o'clock here on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.